Hi, my name's Michael and welcome to Today Dreamer, a podcast and YouTube channel that examines the interplay between inner work and outer work. Through conscious conversations and practical walkthroughs, we'll be exploring ideas and practices to help you find a deeper sense of clarity, develop your focus and take meaningful action. I hope you love the show. Welcome back to the Today Dreamer podcast. It's been a an interesting couple of last couple of weeks for me on a personal level. I've stepped away from the podcast to take a bit of a breath. And I feel like during this kind of seemingly chaotic time, it's worth pausing and just taking a breath and slowing things down for a moment. I use that time to work on my relationships, give them some extra kind of attention and uh, to kind of sit with my relationship with myself as well. And it's been nice kind of just kind of stepping away from the grind of things, the churning of the machine and just pausing for a moment to kind of get a bit of clarity. Today's guest is Westcott Loudon, who is the host of a YouTube channel called Enlighten and a mutual friend of ours put us in touch. And I'm so happy that he did because we got along really well and we we got to reach some really interesting uh, places and cover some interesting topics, including altered states, dreams. Uh, We spoke about religion. Uh, We also spoke about his book, The Way of the Dream. So Sit back, guys, relax, and enjoy the latest episode of the Today Dreamer podcast. There's going to be some really exciting ones to come, and I hope that you're getting something out of these episodes and you're really kind of engaging with uh, the conversations in an exploratory, open, and um, I don't know, practical way. You're experimenting with some of the things that you're hearing and you're getting something out of the show. If you are, consider subscribing and uh, maybe sharing an episode that you like with a friend of yours to help them on their journey as well. Um, but yeah, let's get into this conversation with Westcott. But um, but yeah, it sounds quite intriguing as, as well, to be honest. And that's something that I guess I wanted to touch on with you is this this these elements of um, you know ancient civilizations or cultures and you know their ways of in in one way or another. And it's strangely connected between all the all the all the kind of traditional Aboriginal people of the lands across the world, is their way of kind of reaching these holotropic states and um, meaningful insights from that. And then, you know, because they they haven't had really um, much in the way of the kind of technology that that the the modern world does, um, but they've found a way to get find meaning and kind of move forward so i was i was wondering if if we could maybe use this as a launching pad to to talk about that uh, but just before we do usually the way i start the shows of what i've been doing recently is just inviting kind of everyone listening and and the guests to, to take a couple of breaths with me just so we can kind of i guess uh settle into the space and and just kind of pause for a moment uh, would you be open to doing something like that? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. So, um, everyone out there, and and you out there, and um, Westcott, 
I would really appreciate if you were open to this experience and um, let's take a couple of rests together so we can really just kind of pause for a moment, you know, no, no matter what's been happening during your day, uh, no matter, you know, what you've been experiencing recently, I think it's always kind of a useful thing to be able to pause and come back to even just for a moment, just a state of stillness and, um, and kind of see where that takes us with, with this sense of openness and, and um, you know, willingness to kind of um, sink into the moment. So let's close our eyes together, if that's okay. And um, mm. take a couple of breaths in through the nose using the diaphragm. And um, trying to kind of maintain a, a sense of calmness, smoothness and uh, consistency. As you feel ready, um, slowly open your eyes and yes, let's let's get into things. <laughs> that's a nice uh, that's a nice thing to do. You know, I've done a few interviews and I find always when you set up all the camera equipment, you get the computer working, you're you're a little bit anxious, you know, and you, you're in an anxious space. And just doing a little meditation that is nice, just alleviates the anxiety of getting everything working and set up, and allows you to just yeah relax <laughs> yeah i was doing it for a while quite um for quite a while just on my own and uh it was like a little ritual because i got quite frantic but you know running around setting everything up making sure that i you know wasn't disrespecting the guests by being late or you know sometimes we, we have technical difficulties like you and i had today <laughs> so yeah it is it is nice just to kind of give give things a bit of a reset and i find it's nice to just do it when I notice that my mind seems to be quite chaotic, just to kind of, um, you know, give it a bit of a reset and come back to just the moment that I'm in as kind of um, silly as that may sound. It's just, it's a nice thing. Mm. Yeah, it gets you into a baseline state of awareness for sure. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, so I, I did want to kind of explore this this notion of uh you know these ancient cultures you know you mentioned the sundance sundance a bit earlier and it's only one that i've come across in the last couple of days since talking to marinick to be honest and um definitely find it find these these uh rituals i guess quite quite intriguing especially because you know it it allows us to enter a space this 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 space of, you know, almost like a space between worlds, between, you know, this kind of version of reality that we're all in and, and the other side of things. And um, it's, it's kind of become clear to me that uh, having a foot in both worlds allows us to kind of move forward, uh, in, for me anyways, in, in a more meaningful way. So 
I'd love to hear, you know, a little bit about what got you so interested in in these, you know, the ways that traditional or I'm not really sure how to label them, but you know, ancient ancient cultures or Aboriginal people have, um, you know, reached a holotropic state through what seems to be quite quite common or similar practices. Yeah, it's uh, well, it's interesting in my case how it came about because I never really, that was never my goal. I was never really trying to, you know, find anything out about Aboriginals or traditional uh, spiritual practices. Hi, my name's my, Michael and welcome to Today Dreamer, trying to a make podcast and YouTube channel and, uh, that examines the interplay in between book, inner work and outer work. You know, my, my Through conscious conversations and practical walkthroughs, we'll be exploring ideas and practices and to help you find a deeper God sense of clarity, and, uh, develop your focus Jesus and take meaningful action. And then when the she shared this with me, it was clear to me that she was telling me the truth, you know, and there was, there was no doubt in my mind that for her, this was a real experience. And so my goal was to really make sense out of religion and to try and figure out what it is that, that, that allows religion to persist in the modern world. I mean, I, I really consider myself a, a scientific person. In fact, you know, I have come, I, I think I've upset some of my subscribers because I really, I'm very skeptical, you know, like uh, recently I released a video criticizing Graham Hancock and some of his ideas and the ancient alien theory. You know, I, I, I am a very skeptical person. <clears throat> and so I thought that would be really useful to take that mindset and to try and approach religion from that angle. I, I just didn't feel that, um, that really anybody was doing that or, or anybody was really interested in doing that. I thought, you know, we have such a great understanding of physics, a great understanding of chemistry, astronomy, all these things, but why is it that there's no serious academic research that's trying to sincerely understand the religious experience? That really confounded me. I mean, you think, you know, there's, there's scientific specialists out there who will you know, study a little nematode for their whole life you know, <laughs> and spend countless hours uh, researching the most tiny microorganisms. And yet we completely ignore and neglect to seriously scientifically investigate the religious experience. And uh, as a teenager, that got me excited because I thought, well, here is a whole bloody frontier that I can kind of pioneer. You know, I, I really... I'd, I'd heard so many stories about Isaac Newton and Galileo, and I thought, man, wouldn't it be great to be remembered as one of these guys that pioneered a new avenue of science or something like this, right? That was my teenage uh, mindset mm. with it. But when I, when I got older, uh, I just got frustrated because it was so bloody confusing. And of course, approaching conf uh, Christianity, that really put me off because, you know, the... Uh, that critical skeptical mindset of mine really came up against all these roadblocks of problems in the Bible, problems with the church, problems with doctrine and dogma. And a lot of it just doesn't make sense. Right. And so I really, uh, in a big way, I gave up on all of it. I said, ah, you know what? The atheists are right. It's all a bunch of hooey. Uh, there's nothing to be found here. And, and I sort of walked away from it. And it was right around that time that, that a friend of mine introduced me to Joseph Campbell and uh, the, the hero with a thousand faces and the, and the ideas of perennialism. And uh, I listened to Joseph Campbell's series, Mythos, and it was just a, it was like a light bulb moment, you know, or <laughs> it was just, wow, you know, this really does make sense. 
and uh, what I really came to realize as I, you know, took what I had learned and started uh, applying it to different areas and, and continuing to read is that, you know, dreams really form the center of, of religious experience. Without dreams, you really don't have uh, any sort of religion. And when you talk about, uh, as you mentioned before, you know, psychedelic states, holotropic states, altered states of consciousness, all of these really seem to take someone into a dream state while they're awake. So um, one of my favorite authors, Dr. David Lewis Williams, in his book, The Mind in the Cave, he has this diagram called the spectrum of consciousness. And he explains how uh, most of the time we start in a waking state, like the state we're in now, and then we progress further and further along until we enter a, a, an unconscious state. And it's usually in this sort of unconscious state while we sleep that we tend to experience dreams. Uh, whereas religious methods, specifically in his case, in the book that, he's, that he wrote, he's talking about the sand bushman of South Africa. Uh, he says, you know, what they're doing is they're following a, what he calls an intensified trajectory, where in which they're essentially entering the unconscious mind without losing awareness, without slipping into a state of unconsciousness. So it's almost like staying awake as you enter a dream. And this is in some sense what psychedelics do as well. Uh, you know, I know in my own case, when I've done LSD, and uh, the thing that really overwhelms you is the sense that, my God, I'm dreaming. You know, you really, you really feel it. It's, uh, you look at the world around you, and it feels dreamlike in nature. And so this is, this is an area of consciousness that uh, Aboriginal peoples and traditional societies have explored much more than we have. And in large part, it's due to the fact that that was really the only method they had for obtaining knowledge about the world. I mean, in our modern scientific society, uh, we have access to so many tools, telescopes, microscopes, math, you know, physics, all these different things. We can use all these tools to understand the world around us. But, you know, for somebody living in ancient Egypt or, you know, ancient Mesopotamia, right, you don't have access to any of that. And so altered states of consciousness were really their, their mainstay for trying to make sense out of the world. And, that colors everything. And then, you know, when you see things in that light, it, uh, it really explains a lot. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I find it fascinating that, you know, these, these cultures are on opposite ends of the planet, but they seem to have come up with similar kind of systems and mm. um, ways of doing things and realizations that they've can, you know, used to kind of um, use as a, I guess, lens to look out into the world or in, into themselves. And there seems to be these kind of patterns um, through not only the ways that they reach these states, seems like um, those ways are, to me anyways, it, 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 it seems as though they're push, pushing yourself to exhaustion in one way or another. Um, but also, you know, you know, what's come from those states and, and those insights that have occurred, uh, like, you, like you mentioned, they didn't really have any other way. Hmm. I find that fascinating. Yeah. I think yeah. I think a lot of it is rooted in our biology too, right? Where a lot of these, uh, a lot of these cultures, they employ similar methods because uh, they're drawn naturally to what works. And because we all share a fundamental biology, it, uh, it follows naturally that they would, they would find similar methods. But I think the really interesting thing or the really surprising thing is when you find people uh, populations separated by thousands of miles or thousands of years or separated by language uh, coming to similar conclusions 
uh, as to what they observe in those altered states of consciousness. This is really the um, uh, the foundation, you might say, of, of the Jungian archetypes, where you're looking at the unconscious, you're looking at the nature of mind, and you're noticing these these trends, these consistent observations uh, that crop up everywhere. And that's very, very powerful. And it's a mystery, right? I mean, if, if you take the skeptical, uh, you know, atheistic approach of saying, well, it's all hooey, it's all nonsense, well, then you're left with a, a very big dilemma, you know, <laughs> because uh, how do you explain these continuities? How do you explain uh, these cultural parallels in societies that have never been in contact with one another? And uh, that for me is, is a very powerful uh, insight when it comes to perennialism and uh, these sorts of ideas. Mm, I'm, I find that, I find it interesting how when we look at kind of, if we, if we take all of that and we put it together in, in a big bowl and then we, and then we get another bowl that has kind of what's going on right now, like what is actually happening um, across the world and, and from you know all the perspectives you could you could look at that question from and and just to kind of take a glance at what's kind of emerging and the connection between the two you know like um uh the way that we're kind of in a in a sense we're, we're going through a passage at the moment and there's this this almost this feeling of um like a reconnection um like we've like we've advanced in so many different ways, but these cultures that a lot of us may see as primitive, they're actually, you know, they seem to be more advanced in, in, in um, if we're talking about the mind, for example, in, instead of, you know, this, you know, the kinds of things that, that we're advanced in where almost it feels as though the mind's kind of taken over because we haven't um, been able to understand it as much as, maybe some of these other um, cultures have and that may be due to you know this is going out on a bit of a limb but it might be due to these states and these you know um, ancient ways of, of um, absorbing and finding knowledge and kind of applying that that we've in in some way neglected because of the trajectory that you know the the recent um, couple of hundred years have has been on yeah, it's very true. You know, it's, um, I think a big part of it is that over the last, well, I would say probably well over a thousand years, uh, there's been a, a tremendous uh, resurgence of, uh, you know, what I've heard sometimes called Aristotelian logic. You know, the, um, the ancient Greeks were really the very first to, to take that kind of a state of mind. Um, you have all, for instance, the ancient Greek myths, uh, you know, that are, that are clearly you know, mystical and mythological, but in the midst of that, you know, Plato and Aristotle and the, uh, the great minds of those early Greek philosophers, they, they attempted to make sense out of the world by completely ignoring mythology, ignoring altered states of consciousness, and uh, relying almost exclusively on reason and a very clear problem-solving, sober state of consciousness, almost sober to the extreme, you know, where you're just, your mind is very rigorous and uh you know with with the takeover of christianity in uh you know in the roman period that aristotelian mode of consciousness that rational mode of consciousness sort of went underground uh for quite a while but then in the middle ages it, it had an enormous resurgence oh what is going on you can grab that 
No, it's somebody's paging it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'll just sit back. So you're talking about the resurgence? Yeah. So the, the uh, you know, in the Middle Ages, you had, you know, this, this major resurgence of Greek ideas, Greek logic. Uh, you know, the Greek language was really rediscovered by Western Europeans uh, around the time of the collapse of the Ottoman Empire in the 1400s. And uh, then when the, the Catholic Church took over Spain from the, from the Moors and, and they translated all of those uh, books from Arabic into English, or rather into Latin and uh, French, you know, they, there was uh, this tremendous resurgence of scholasticism, of scholarly work. Of course, we call this the Renaissance, right? It was the rebirth of Greek reason. And in some sense, Western man became addicted to that because we saw its potential, we saw its power. And, uh, you know, it was, it was totally justified because, I mean, you know, I'm speaking to you right now instantly and you're on the other side of the world. <laughs> this is the power of technology. Uh, you know, so it's, it's certainly valuable. Uh, but I think now that what has happened is at the far end of this, now that we're in the 21st century, uh, there's been a recognition that with all this knowledge, there are still some very fundamental questions about ourselves that we have no idea about. Like, for instance, what is consciousness? Uh, what happens when people die? What are dreams made out of? You know, these seem like very rudimentary, childlike questions. You know, why is the sky blue? And yet we have no idea. And science has largely ignored these things, uh, and it's been content to essentially bypass them or to offer very... Uh, very unsatisfactory, superficial answers. I've seen this quite a lot in science where uh, serious academics will take some of these deeply profound mysteries and for fear of acquiring a bad reputation, they will, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They'll, they'll sort of minimalize it or, you know, make it sound very dull and, and, tr and, and try to avoid anything that sounds mysterious for fear that they might be associated with woo uh, mysticism or, you know, the, the goofiness of spirituality, right? So there's, I think, a big cultural interest in these things today because we're aware of this now. We're looking around and we're saying, hey, there's something here and it's worth looking into, you know. The mind is not just the brain, you know. I think we're becoming more and more aware of that. Yeah, it is quite interesting how just just the thought what comes to me right now is just this idea of... Um, you know, this change, it seems to be a shift within science as well. And you can see people kind of stepping out, you know, in spite of those um, common kind of uh, perceptions of, of this kind of stuff being really woo, you know, they're stepping out and taking a chance and exploring some of these areas. And, and that's really kind of exciting stuff. There's also a part of me that feels like, you know, I, I had a realization a few years ago and it was this this idea of like not needing to know everything like I, I, all my life I've really wanted so many answers for so many things and I, I guess that's really made me suffer and, and has had has been a bit of a weight on my shoulders and this idea of kind of letting go of that and just accepting what is and just being in awe of everything you know brings me you know a sense of peace it, it's like you know why do we need anything more special you know people ask for interesting stories all the time but I mean, there's so much beauty all, all around us and, and just to be able to, you know, um, realize that beauty and to accept it without having to know the reason behind it all, um, 
I think I feel like that could be quite liberating as well. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people uh, have, have felt that way. I know it's been a, a kind of a, a more recent realization for myself as well, where, you know, the, the scientific process and the inquisitive Western mind, uh, you know, is, is very, you know, as, as much as it's inspired by curiosity, it's also incredibly harmful. You know, I, I'm reminded here, uh, I, I just showed the uh, the kids here the other day, uh, the, the old Jurassic Park movie mm. from the 90s, you know, and there's one scene in there where he says, I, I can't remember the exact words, but he says, you know, what you call scientific inquiry is what I call the rape of the natural world. And uh, it's very true, you know, like I, I think about the fact, you know, I've been studying ancient Egypt quite a lot here lately. And, you know, we, we, we discover a tomb and we can't not open it. You know, we must open it. <laughs> we have to tear it apart, take everything out, you know, clear away all the dust, take pictures of everything, dismember, disassemble. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's in some sense very violent, you know, the, the things that we do to, to understand and to try to comprehend the, the world around us. And that, that's a thing that's often overlooked, you know, that the people... They, they think as long as it's inspired by curiosity, it's okay, but that's a very Western notion. And uh, it's very iconoclastic in the sense that there's nothing sacred to us. You know, we have no problem, you know, disassembling and tearing things apart just to understand them a little better, mm. you know, and it's, it's the, it's the example of dissecting a toad. I mean, you want to know how it works, but in the process you kill that frog. And oftentimes we don't think about that. We're too busy trying to know you know which uh in a big way life is more i think in many ways more about living in the mystery and accepting the not knowing you know it's it's difficult mm. but it takes faith to do that yeah mm. so what's where are you at the moment with your explorations and is there anything in particular that's kind of exciting you you mentioned uh egypt and kind of the study into that yeah, well, right now what I'm doing is uh, I'm organizing my program called Enlightened University. It's uh, it's a website that I put together for for my subscribers, and uh, my goal is essentially to take the students through an educational program that starts from the the earliest roots of religion, uh, all the way up into you know modern modern concerns and uh, modern ideas, and so that's really it's a lot of work. It's, <laughs> you know, I have to, I have to take these, these big tomes, these big books and try to condense them down into, you know, six or seven half hour lectures. And, uh, you know, it's, it's good though. I, you know, many of the books that I'm reading are books that I've wanted to really dive into. I've known about them, but for my own curiosity, it, yeah, I looked at it and said, it's too much work. You know, it's, if I'm just doing it for me, it's too much work. But now that I have the university, it's it's great because it's like, okay, now I have to do it. You know, I have to dig in there and, and really uh, learn about all this to uh, to share it and know it. So, And is that something you would just yeah, like, right now, how did I'm that come up? Greek myth how where, did this? Uh, uh, we're just going to be finishing. I'm actually going on to the pyramid text. Okay. Uh, pyramid text next. So that'll be, that'll be interesting. The pyramid text. Uh, is that like a, a, a sacred uh, book from ancient Egypt? Yeah, it's it's quite interesting actually. The um, like if you look at the pyramid of Giza or the pyramid of uh, uh, Merenre or any of those guys, the the oldest pyramids, you go into the tombs and they're completely empty. There's no inscriptions on the walls whatsoever. 
And uh, a lot of people say, well, that's weird. Well, no, it's not actually. It was, it was the norm in early Egypt. Uh, it was not until the reign of, of Pharaoh Unas, uh, I believe it was in the fourth dynasty, that the Egyptians started to inscribe the walls with all these spells. They'd have hundreds of spells that they would inscribe on the walls all around the king. And uh, essentially what the spells were designed to do was to lead the Pharaoh through the afterlife into an experience of union with the sun, where he would be reborn as Ra or Osiris, the sun god, and then reign in the afterlife as a king as well. So it's, uh, it's one of the oldest books in the world. In fact, it might be the oldest book in the world, the pyramid text. It's, uh, it's fascinating, it's really interesting stuff. <laughs> well, and you've got a copy of this book. Yeah, yeah, I've got a translation right over there. It's, uh, I read through it, and, but it's dense. That's the thing about ancient texts, right, is that, I mean, they tend to be oftentimes repetitious, uh, you know, very hard to understand. But, uh, yeah, I slugged my way through it, and it's, it's, there's some interesting insights, but you've really got to chisel away to get at them. Yeah, well, that probably <laughs> makes them worth a little bit more, I guess, and, and that the kind of journey to, to those insights um helps them kind of be absorbed i feel that 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 seems to be something that happens in a lot of different ways i've i've been into uh vibration recently and and i've been kind of i've been getting this feeling to kind of write a book about it from different perspectives and and explore it myself and um just during my research recently i found that there's this i can't remember the name of it it's like this ancient egyptian um it seems like a a shaker uh, you probably know what I'm talking about, and it creates this certain kind of um, vibratory energy. And um, yeah, the uh, the sistrum. Sistrum, yeah. I found I found that quite interesting, and even the way some of the um, pyramids or spaces were designed to really um, bring about a certain vibrational quality with the with the frequency and and how how the how the waves kind of ricochet around, and and yeah, I I found that really fascinating as well. Mm. yeah it is interesting you know there's i know i watched a video about the uh some of the pyramid text pyramids in egypt and people going through them and the echo you get to those spaces is pretty pretty intense yeah it's very ominous <laughs> yeah very ominous echo yeah. yeah so while i was doing my research i i i noticed that um you've got qu quite a few uh interesting videos that that um, you know, link up to topics that I'm really fascinated in. I mean, you mentioned Jung earlier and and this idea of the collective unconscious and, and the archetypes. And I feel like even that connects with what you mentioned about uh, the hero's journey as well and Joseph Campbell's work. Um, and I had recently a Jungian analyst on the show and we were talking about the idea of the shadow and integrating these kind of darker sides of our psyche and and, you know, following the soul's calling, I guess, um, in whatever direction uh, that may be. And we also kind of touched on, you know, a few different elements um, like synchronicity and the idea of dreams and this, this strange connection between, you know, intrapsychic phenomena when you're kind of sleeping and what happens when you're awake. Um, do you, have you explored any of those areas at all? Oh yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's a big part of uh, big part of my research. Where yeah, Young's Young's research is really, in some sense, I'm kind of jealous. I I feel as if Young uh, really was the Isaac Newton of religion. I mean, he really 
he, he provided for the very first time a system for understanding religion that sort of allowed us to walk away from dogmatism and, uh, you know, rigid ideological thinking and really kind of approach the religious experience uh, in a more scientific manner. Uh, and I think the big thing that he's found is that the, the psyche is a reality unto itself. And, and that is huge. I mean, it's, it's really, I, I don't know, you know, I, I, I'm sure that a lot of people hear about Jung's ideas, but I don't think that probably impresses itself on people enough is to understand that what Jung really was saying is that the mind is something completely different. It's so other, it's so unique that you really cannot reduce it to, to just physical you know, connections in the brain. I mean, the, you know, the, the Jungian archetypes and different characters that you meet in dreams, they appear to be autonomous. Um, I'm reminded, actually, I, I was just putting together lecture five here uh, based on Jungian archetypes. And uh, one of the students has been reading through the red book that Jung wrote. And there's, there's this wonderful conversation in there. And uh, I actually had him send me a screenshot of it so that I can include it in the presentation where Young is having a discussion with Elijah and Mary, and uh, he explains to Elijah and to Mary, he says, well, you're merely projections of my mind, right? Speaking as a psychoanalyst, he says, you know, I, I understand this, it's all an illusion, and you're just sort of figments of my imagination. And uh, Elijah says, we are as real as you. And he says, you confuse me. He says, do you mean to say that you wish to be real? And Elijah says, no, you may call us projections of your mind but that in no way negates our reality and you know it's a it's a very sophisticated conversation young was having in a dream where these these individuals in the dream are explaining to him no 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 you're you're wrong you know we are real you know it's a it's a profound thing i know in my own case uh when i was really first introduced to Jungian psychology there's a very simple phrase that young said in one of his interviews uh, where he talked about precognitive dreams, and he stated that, that it was simply a fact. He says, you know, it's, it's a fact that people will dream about the future. We know this, you know, he stated it as if it was the most obvious thing in the world. And uh, for me at the time, I was an atheist, I, you know, it was full stop. <laughs> That's, you know, having dreams about the future uh, is, is enormously significant because what it suggests is that the mind uh, in some sense, transcends time, or that it is somehow independent of the physical laws of our immediate reality. And that was such a, a big, you know, a big message for me that uh, I started recording my dreams and uh, paying very close attention. And I remember, you know, I, I came to the point where I realized, well, perhaps, you know, recording my dreams isn't enough. Maybe I need to pray to some higher intelligence asking for some kind of a dream about the future. And uh, I thought, you know, maybe these things are not just going to, you know, coincidentally happen. I may have to appeal to some kind of a higher intelligence. And as an atheist, that was deeply uh, offensive at the time. <laughs> you know, I, I put off the whole idea of God. And here, thanks to Carl Jung, I was, you know, considering the, the, the invitation to pray. But you, so, were, you were open enough to do it as well. And that's worth mentioning, I think. Yeah, and it's funny because I, I had a very short debate where I, with myself where I said, well, the important thing here is to understand the way things are and to hell with how I feel about it. I mean, just because I think I'm an atheist doesn't mean anything. What's important is coming to a firm 
and uh, logical understanding of the way things are. That's what matters, right? And so I just put that part of myself aside and said, you know, we're not listening to that. And so I prayed. And sure enough, I, I had a dream about uh, standing in a store. And I've seen these people in orange smocks, and they were all talking among themselves. It was a very short dream, but it was very vivid and felt very real. And at the time, I happened to be looking for work. I was trying to get a job in a hardware store. And so I took the dream as maybe a piece of advice to go and apply at Totem, because at Totem, they wear orange smocks. I put in a resume. Nothing came of it. They never called me. I thought, ah, the dream was hooey, and I gave up on the whole project, hmm. right? Well, a few months later, I got a job at Home Depot where they wear orange smocks, <laughs> and I still didn't think of it. I, it, it was, you know, kind of in the past now enough that I'd forgotten all about it. And then the one day I'm standing there, and I look over and I see these people in orange smocks, and this moment of deja vu hits me, and I go, oh, I've seen this before, and I remembered the dream. I knew that it was the dream, and uh, wow, that was the end of my uh that was really the, the firm end of my skepticism and atheistic sort of materialist thinking where I said, okay, young is right. Uh, you know, the mind has a reality all its own. It is, it is an independent thing that doesn't simply arise from brain activity. Uh, yeah, that's, it was profound. <laughs> it's interesting how you seem to have invited that experience in by asking for it through the prayer, especially as an atheist. I mean, that seems like a big step uh, like we touched on. So just from conversations I've been having recently with friends and their own kind of experiences, it seems to be uh, the case that once you're open to things and once you kind of invite them in, it, it opens up the possibilities. And, um, you know, you mentioned wanting a firm and kind of it seemed quite rigid kind of sense of truth that you were seeking. You were willing to kind of go over anything to get there. But I like the idea of also, you know, you mentioned in the beginning of our chat this idea of um, you being really uh, skeptical about a lot of things and questioning a lot of things and not really, you know, holding on to, you know, all your beliefs with dear life. You know, there's, there's, there's this idea that that's kind of happened recently and, and um, coming back to kind of these ancient cultures, this, this kind of fluidity of, um, you know, the way things are and this openness to maybe see things you know, differently than you may have originally thought seems to be um, a significant thing to mention. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, in studying different religious groups, I've seen it a lot where, you know, people will hold on to a certain set of ideas. Uh, well, I'll give you a perfect example here. You know, we, my wife and I, we've recently moved into the house here in uh, Red Deer and due to COVID, you know, I, I was laid off. And so we've been having some some income issues, you know, with work and everything else. So we decided we move in with my mother-in-law to save some money. Mm. And uh, it's been interesting, you know, she comes from old Africa, she's from South Sudan. And, uh, you know, I've been, I've been saying, well, we need to teach uh, my wife's brother how to cook. He's, you know, 16, 17, he's going to be on his own. And she says, no, she says, in my country, if a man cooks, people die. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> that's the old you know and they have these traditional values yeah. where you know we often i often suggest things where i say well we need to do this or we need to do that and in response she simply offers the tradition you know that no in my country we don't do things that way well you know it's it's interesting right because from a western point of view uh we largely i think for the most part understand that those kinds of beliefs are essentially worthless i mean they don't hold any value 
And I often find it strange how with religion we don't seem to see that. I mean, if you believe something spiritually that isn't true, it's quite simply a worthless belief. I mean, it has no value. A belief it becomes, that isn't a, it becomes who you are, right? It becomes your, your sense yeah. of identifying. And, and if someone challenges that, I mean, what yeah, else do you have, so, really? It's so weird to, to, if you really stop and think about it. I mean, people will become so rigidly attached to a set of beliefs, uh, you know, as you mentioned, because it informs who they are. But even when you show them that that belief is simply not true, they'll still hold on to it simply to reinforce this sense of self. But fundamentally, you've now put a crack in your identity because your identity is built on something that's false, right? And I, and I you know, when I was younger, I saw that quite clearly, that, that correct beliefs and a correct understanding of the way things are is absolutely essential. And there's zero value beyond immediate comfort in holding on to a false belief. And, uh, you know, if I think more people took that approach with their religious beliefs, religion could move forward much more quickly, but it's largely held back because many people hold false beliefs because it makes them feel better. Mm. But it's, it's such a, such a worthless thing to do because, I mean, yeah, if you believe, I don't know, if you believe that uh, it's going to rain tomorrow and make all these plans about that. And then, then, then it doesn't rain. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a worthless venture. I mean, you haven't, you haven't accomplished anything, right. But just because it makes you feel good, you do it anyways. Well, that's the irrationality of, of impulsive behavior, I guess, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It, it religion is such a touchy subject and, and partly because of the reasons you've just highlighted, I guess this is also these, I don't know, there's certain characters you meet in, in certain circles. There seems to be, when I remember, I just remember I have this memory when I was a kid and it was like my mother's, uh, one of my mother's best friends, um, their husband or something. And we were at some kind of social setting. Um, I think it was like some kind of a Hungarian dance or something or someone's wedding. I don't know. And there was just this guy, I was just a kid and he was like, he came over and he started kind of pre preaching kind of um, the word of God. And he, and he started kind of, um, you know, really intensely to like an eight-year-old kid <laughs> trying to convert me um, to whatever kind of religion he was into. And, and I've met a few of those characters in my time and, and there seems to be, I don't know, this real kind of um, wanting to focus on, on others um, sometimes even, you know, without focusing inwards. And mm. I don't know, I, I just feel like just by looking at this idea of vibes recently, just linking this up a little bit, um, I've been looking at kind of how to tune into the vibes or the rhythm of what's going on and whatever that may mean. I've been exploring that and then how to sync up with that and then um, how to actually radiate that outwards once you are aligned. And, and, um, it, it, everything I've been looking at kind of comes back to doing work within and then having that naturally overflow rather than trying to force something out onto other people. Um, so I've been trying yeah, to kind no, of, yeah, I, uh, I, I, what you're saying reminds me a lot of, uh, uh, the words of St. Francis of Assisi. It's one of my favorite quotes. He said, uh, uh, preach the gospel always. And when absolutely necessary, use words, you know, in other words, you know, the, the, the life that you're leading is the way that you communicate Christ to other people, not the words that you're saying. And it's sad how many, many uh, 
Christians and religious people today have sort of turned Christianity and, and a lot of Western religions more into a virus than anything else. It's not, it's not actually enriching the life of the individual. It just sort of moves from person to person and uses up energy. I mean, that's what a virus does, right? And I think a lot of atheists and a lot of skeptics and critics of religion, they see that. Whereas oftentimes the converts can't. They can't see that, you know, this religious belief is making them anxious, making them rude, making them, uh, you know, less happy. It's, it's just burning energy. It, and it refers to nothing that's immediately true in their lives. I mean, they're convincing themselves the apocalypse is coming, you know, but it, it you know, it doesn't happen. You know, the world, the world carries on. And, uh, you know, they feel this urgent need to push these ideas on others. And uh, it, it's essentially like a virus. You know, it's, it's taking something which is rich and beautiful and uh, sincere and just sort of turning it into something noxious and, and cruel sometimes. Mm. You know? Yeah, this idea of a virus just, of course, makes me think about what's everything that's going on at the moment. And even the ideas that are being pushed around, you know, in every direction you know, in, in the atmosphere at the moment. And it's just kind of, I don't know, I guess, do you have any, do you have any techniques that you utilize in your own life that, that kind of, um, bring you back into yourself or that, you know, that you've kind of maybe milked or, or, or gathered from these different, um, areas of study through history and religion? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned it actually. I, uh, I just recently did a, a presentation on the work of uh, Dr. Paul Dobransky, who is uh, not a particularly well-known figure. He, uh, I was actually introduced to him when I was a, a pickup artist and I was learning how to get with girls and these sorts of things. You know, that was when I was in my younger years. And uh, there was this guy, David D'Angelo, who had him on as a psychologist. And I think he actually is a student of, of Jungian ideas of course this was before i knew anything about young mm. this was when i was still an atheist but uh, a lot of the things i learned there were were incredibly useful where he explains how you know we have to visualize ourselves as having a kind of personal boundary so within your personal boundary you have 100% control of what's happening and outside of your personal boundary you have 0% control so you know, if I want to change something in my life, go to the gym, work out more, that's 100% in my control. Uh, being able to change, you know, the neighbor Susie's attitude about mowing your grass is not going to be in my control, you know. So these are the things where you have to recognize what's in your control and what's not. And uh, he talks about how this personal boundary is like a permeable membrane. And it's, it's permeable to the things we say yes and no to. So in relationships, when you meet somebody and you like them, you open all the doors in your personal boundary. Yeah, come over. It's okay. Yeah, you can borrow that. Oh, I, I want to be your friend. I agree with you. Yes, yes, yes. Right. We open all these doors. Uh, but oftentimes what that will do is it will create contempt in the other person. They, they learn not to respect you. They start to walk all over your personal boundary. Uh, we use little things in our language. Like, for instance, if you say, uh, you know, that individual over there, he really pushes my buttons or uh, that that woman, she really gets under my skin. These are all metaphorical references to this notion of a personal boundary. And so the essential thing for, for mental health and uh, a mature ego 
is to get comfortable with hearing no and saying no. You know, you have to identify who you are and what it is that's important to you and then recognize where you have control in your life and then simply where you find something that you don't like, you simply put doors in the way of that. So if you have a relationship with somebody that's toxic, they're not treating you the way you want to be treated, you have to get comfortable with saying no. But you also have to get comfortable with hearing no, because maybe you have a friend uh, you know, in your life who has a healthy boundary that knows who they are, knows what they value, and they tell you no. Well, sometimes that can make people with a weak boundary feel nervous or uncomfortable, because they feel, well, it's confrontational to say no, but really that's not the case. That's how mature, uh, mature people communicate. Yeah, it's the notion of personal boundaries and, and getting comfortable with hearing no and saying no. And mm. it's, very, it's, it's very important for mental health, very important for relationships. Um, one of the things I've seen, you know, in relationships, romantic relationships, where you'll get a lot of fighting, a lot of, you know, a lot of squabbling, it's often due to boundary issues where the individual will consider themselves entitled to something in the other individual's boundary. So, mm. you know, for instance, uh, you may be married and then, you know, your wife grabs your keys and, and grabs you the, the car and takes it into town. And, it, you know, it turns out that, uh, you know, you, you had to do some work on the car and you say, well, why didn't you come and ask me before you use my car? Well, I shouldn't have to. And then the fight goes, you know, it's this idea of, uh, you know, in relationships, we have to set these firm personal boundaries where we let other people know how it is we wish to be treated, what it is that we're that we believe is important, and uh, to respect those boundaries. It's very difficult, but it's the mark of all mature relationships. And uh, I find just that it's very practical, it's very simple, but just being aware of that and implementing it uh, can make a huge difference in your quality of life. It's um, yeah, I'll a lot of times you. we. No, sorry. I'll let you go. Oh, no. Yeah, I was just going to say a lot of times we uh, we allow people to step on our boundaries and to do things that we don't like because we want to be friends with them and we don't want to upset them. But uh, usually that's not so wise. Yeah, yeah I've definitely had an, you know this exact experience in my relation in one of my relationships, like my car one actually in the early stages. But um, yeah, it just reminds me of a thought I was having yesterday and that thought is kind of it ties up in a weird way but it's 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 kind of like look at look at your life for a moment look at the things that you do look at the things that you the choices that you make and the and i guess in this um in this sense the boundaries that you put up and and kind of what you're constructing how you construct your days because everything at the end of the day is is although it might be informed by um certain levels of conditioning and upbringing and and you know your environment you know a lot of what's happening is actually your choice and once we look at that, we can. I think it's we're able to see coming back to this idea that we're talking about, this mystical idea that this revelation you had with Jung, you know, we're we're actually kind of creating things. We're creating everything around us all the time, and we've got the power. I mean, if if our mind, if it's so what if it so clearly has the power to you know, um, have things happen, strange things happen like deja vu or have dreams about the future or, um, you know, it's. I heard a heard a conversation with Stan Groff. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. He wrote a book on LSD and he's done like over four and a half thousand sessions with, you know, in a in a kind of um I guess a in a in a psychological setting where he was studying um kind of the effects on people and, and, and looking at different patterns and associations. 
um, through throughout you know thousands of experiences. And he was talking about one really peculiar experience that he had. Uh, I think it was on the Tim Ferriss show about a year ago, and um, he was talking about this idea of kind of being able to reach a point, this this unbelievable kind of realization that he's able to travel. Um, anywhere he's able to do anything in any moment and it's something that it's really hard for us to wrap our minds around but it connects to these shamanic traditions you know you, you look at a lot of them and they have uh, i'm jumping around a little bit here but they they have these certain rituals where uh, they may go into some sort of a cave or some sort of a hole and they're able to kind of um, transport themselves you know to different parts of the world um, psychically and they're able to kind of do these things that you hear and you're just like that sounds like bullshit but um, they're <laughs> able to actually you know um, have these kinds of uh, experiences on the other side of things and and bring back knowledge from them and and then you know useful stuff and then like we were talking about earlier that all kind of connects with different traditions around the world but I guess the thing that I was thinking about the other day was really this idea of forming our own reality forming our lives by the things that we choose to participate in by the different choices we make by the ways we decide to live we're actually building our life in every moment um and it sounds pretty obvious but it's not it's not really something i i feel a lot of us are uh, taking action on and, and something i definitely haven't been in the past you know i talk about a lot of things but actually walking the walk and and the challenge of of keeping that walk up despite the different kind of experiences and challenges and struggles that come up is uh is becoming more what life's about for me at the moment yeah i think it's uh it's it's very difficult to hold those those beliefs or to uh sustain them especially when things go very much in the direction you don't want i know you know i've had these very clear experiences where you know i've wished for something or prayed for something uh and then gotten exactly what it was that i'd wished for prayed for it's interesting actually this way of saying it wish for uh something i learned in buddhism they don't really pray for things they wish for things mm. and uh it, it really does work it's it's creepy in a way but oftentimes what you'll also find is that you know when you when you wish for something you'll you'll get what you hoped for but it will always come with something you didn't plan or you didn't want uh in fact this is one of my favorite uh, hindu stories called the wish fulfilling tree and uh, if you mind, or if you don't mind, I'll, I'll tell you Please do. a lovely little story. Uh, it says that there, were, there was a group of children and they were all playing in a house and their uncle comes and he says, uh, oh, it's, it's lovely children that you've got these toys, but no one's told you about the magical tree in the yard. And the kids, they say, no, no, what do you mean, uncle? And he says, well, I should tell you, there's this tree outside. And if you go to the tree, you wish for anything you want and the tree will give it to you. And so right away, all the children go rushing out of the house and they go to the tree. And of course, they wish for candy and toys and all these wonderful things. And the tree provides them. But with the toys, they also inherit boredom. And with the candy, they get stomach aches. And they say, well, that's not very good. So then they say, well, let's wish a little better this time. So this time they wish for popularity and friends and boyfriends and girlfriends. And, you know, with that, they inherit jealousy and, and fear and quarreling and fighting. And so I say, well, that's not right. We need to wish, we need to wish better again. And so this time they wish for, for spouses and children and houses and cars and all these things, you know, 
and with that they inherit responsibility and burdens and anxieties and that you know these things don't satisfy them at all and uh you know some of the children they say oh this tree is a curse you know it's uh, uh life is worthless it's all no good and so they kill themselves but the Hindu story says, but where can anyone be born except again at the feet of the wish-fulfilling tree? And, uh, you know, others keep wishing and wishing and just ignore the negative consequences and carry on. But the story says all while this is going on, uh, a small handicapped boy is, is sitting in the house. He, he, you know, he's in a wheelchair. He can't use his legs. And so at a distance, he's watching all of this. And he says to himself, those poor fools, he says, they don't understand that every time they wish for something, they get an equal portion of suffering along with it. And so he slowly makes his way out to the tree and he says, I wish that these beings would find lasting happiness. And the Hindu story ends by saying, and that one became the enlightened being, you know? So mm. this is, this is the idea of, of uh, our material reality. We certainly have the ability to create it, but yeah, the flip side is that the wish-fulfilling tree always gives us an equal portion of suffering to go along with our wishes. Unless you're like that boy with the broken legs who can kind of use your wishes and your, I guess, you, the creation of your life to, in some way, serve others. I mean, that's mm -hmm. what it seems like the message is, and that seems like something that really comes through to me in a lot of different ways um, as the way to go, I guess. Like, you know, like looking, looking, looking at how you can you know, serve others, looking at your friendships rather than what you can take and is what, what you can give to them. And that's why I guess this idea of, I don't know, this, this, the idea of um, like a gift economy really excites me or the idea of, um, you know, trading with one another and, you know, finding ways to, I guess, in a sense, maybe not better yourself, but in a sense, kind of just connect to who you really are, or remember who you really are, so that you know you're 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 able to kind of pass that on to other people and and bring bring a nice sense of I don't know, like a good feeling to others. I think that's where this whole idea of doing good for others is good for you. I had an interesting conversation with a guy that I think that was the title of his book actually, and he kind of talked about it, you know, even from a health perspective, physiological changes when you do good for others and and um you know how your life changes but it, it, there is this inter interesting consideration about you know just as just as there's so much good with something there's also an equal amount of of bad for lack of a better way of putting it this kind of contrast this balance this yin and yang and 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 a sense of acceptance of that as well um seems to be pretty important on the journey yeah it's it's very liberating i know that um for me, you know, the realization of that and seeing it in my life where, yeah, I've, I've gotten exactly what I hoped for, but it just wasn't exactly what I thought it was going to be, or there wasn't, you know, things didn't go the way I hoped they would. Uh, and just being aware of this, like you mentioned, being the yin and yang. And uh, I think ultimately, you know, from my own mystical experiences, the, the experiences I've had, uh, most especially, I, I had like a near-death experience on LSD and there was one point where I felt myself to be the, the deity Vishnu in, in Hindu myth. Mm. And I was having a conversation with Shiva and Shiva explained to me very clearly. He said, you know, all these misfortunes that you suffer in life have a very particular purpose. It's intended to detach you from the dream so that you can re-arrive back to this place of remembering who you really are. 
you know, as if to say, if the dream were always good, you'd hold on to it and never let go. And you would completely forget that you are in fact God dreaming. And I had this sense that, you know, the, the personification of chaos, in this case, Shiva, was explaining that it was his job in the universe to make sure that everything fails, everything dissolves, everything goes to hell. <laughs> and that forces us as divine dreamers, if you will, uh, to wake up and to become enlightened and to realize, oh, that's right. It's only a dream. And secretly, I'm the dreamer. Uh, you know, because that's the that's the safety valve, I guess you might say. <laughs> yeah, it's like there needs to almost be the sense of destruction and rebirth um, for the cycle to go on. Otherwise, it's just kind of, you know, and that, yeah, that, there seems, that seems to be a common theme within religion as well, different religions, this idea of death, rebirth, the cyclical oh, yeah. kind of um, vibe of things, I guess. I wanted to ask you about your book. The way of the dream. Oh, yeah. What's going on with that? Tell me a little bit about. Well, it's uh, it's an autobiography. I uh, I wrote it. What was it now? Two years, two years ago, or a year ago? I published it in December of last year, I believe it was. Mm. And it's uh, it mostly recounts my journey, my story. I talk about my childhood and the experiences I had, but the uh, the book is really. Uh, the, the, the purpose behind it is to show people, I guess you might say what a real, what I consider to be, at least in my case, what a real spiritual life can look like in the sense of being messy and chaotic and, you know, not, you know, there's a whole section of the book where I am very generously, uh, uh, how would you say, um, honest, you know, painfully honest about my flaws, about mistakes I made, you know, embarrassing situations. Uh, you know, the confusion I went through being a Christian, being an atheist, being a Buddhist. And, uh, you know, there's, there's points in the book where, you know, you, you'll read about my character and you'll think, oh, what a wonderful guy. And then other points you think, what a, you know, what a scoundrel. And I, I really wanted to, to convey, you know, the, 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 the messiness of what a spiritual life looks like. I know that, um, you know, now that I teach on YouTube and now that I, you know, I present to people, I know that a lot of my subscribers look up to me as a spiritual teacher, as, as a kind of guru, but I really have no desire of presenting myself as a saint or, a, you know, a, a perfect individual. It's simply not true. And uh, I think it's very valuable to share my story with the flaws and to say, you know, if you're going through these things, it's okay because I've went through them too. And if I'm going to be a spiritual teacher, I guess you could say that's the kind of spiritual teacher I'd like to be. Uh, not up on a pedestal saying, you know, look at me and try to be like me, but really in the trenches, you know, and say, <laughs> hey, I'm like you. I've got bad habits. I've got flaws. But we're, let's, you know, let's move towards this goal together and uh, try to achieve something. Yeah, that sounds really cool, man. That sounds like it would be a, an amazing <laughs> read just to kind of go through that and, and to be able to kind of relate with some of those things. Because we know I noticed that, you know, a lot of the things that I'm going through a lot of people are going through that and there seems to be a real connection and, and a real reunion element brings us together a little bit more when we can um, feel into other people's experiences. Can you tell me a little bit about your, um, I'm not sure if obsession is the right word, but your interest in uh, astronomy? Oh, yeah. Wow. It's, uh, I think it, you know, I was actually interested in astronomy before religion, and I, but I think it runs in the same vein of, of, the big picture, you know, <laughs> trying to understand 
what's going on, where are we, you know, what's the big picture with all of this? Uh, that seems to be uh, my big thing, you know, even, even when I teach, you know, I tend to start with the big picture and then narrow in on the details. Mm. You know, I, I like to get that broad sense of, of understanding the world and then fill in the rest as we go. And uh, so for, for me, astronomy is, um, well, first off, it's, it's incredibly uh, nurturing in the sense that it gives you a context or a sense of where you are in the universe, but it's also incredibly liberating because when, you know, every night when I look through my telescope and I just see how vast the universe is, uh, it fills my mind with possibilities. And, you know, that's, I guess that's something that was Buddhist about me all along. You know, the Buddhists, they often say, when you look at an empty room, don't see it as empty, see it as full of potential. You know, there's just total potential there. You know, as soon as you fill it full of stuff, well, now you've taken all the potential away. Now you're stuck with what you have, right? But as long as it's empty, there's just nothing but potential. And uh, when you look up into the universe, many people see so much emptiness and so much void and, and just, you know, vastness, but really it's just filled with imaginative potential. I mean, every star could harbor worlds with beings that, you know, we can't even imagine beings who live lives that, that we wouldn't even be able to comprehend. I mean, it's just, uh, yeah, it's a trip in itself. It, it definitely <laughs> is. And, and every time I look out, recently i've I've found that i'm kind of almost looking in in a way like i'm kind of looking out at the stars but that gives me Absolutely. this real kind of deep profound moment of really kind of introspection and, and just kind of being almost feeling like i'm one with everything just kind of in awe of of the mystery of everything you know well and it's it's funny you could mention that because uh you know that's that, that's something that's very uh particular you know many myths will identify a region like that so for instance in the old myths you know you would say well you know over the mountains there's a land and in that land you know there are all these magical beings like in middle age times they'd say beyond here uh monsters be found or you know things like this mm. right really what it was describing is because no one knew what was the there unknown, yeah. it was a region where the imagination could just run free you know and you could project out you know all these things well you know, the earth has been circumnavigated several times. I mean, we have Google Earth, you can, you know, zoom right in on your house. Uh, but space is still largely unexplored. So when we look up, it's one of the few spaces that we still have left, where we can really let the imagination run free. And uh, I think that's why films like Star Wars and, uh, you know, things of that kind really catch on with people because it's believable because anything is possible in the stars, right? Yeah, we don't know what's up there. So exactly that kind of um infinite amount of potentiality and and you know that the beauty of that within our own lives is something kind of worth uh <laughs> worth being with I, I like the idea of kind of thinking about that and, and i like when i find that i, I get into that state it, it feels nice it feels like exciting it feels like um who knows where things could go and and um you know it feels like we're just getting started in a way <laughs> um, I'm reminded of uh, Lama Ole Nidal, my former Buddhist teacher. He used to talk about that. Where he says, "You know, if you if you sit down with un, unhappy people, uh, you'll often find that they use language like, oh, this is very real,' or you know, these are the hard facts of life.' You know, and they they speak with very solid language. They have a very solid, rigid way of thinking." Whereas happy people tend to speak with very airy language, very dreamy language. Well, anything is possible, right? Any, you, if you really wish it, it can be, you know, this kind of a light 
dreamlike uh, kind of communication, right? So yeah, the, the, it's very difficult in life because we often feel trapped. We often feel hemmed in, uh, you know, prisoners of our own little, you know, reality, our poverty, our mortality, whatever it may be, uh, you know, but I find that, you know, a simple thing like meditation or prayer or going out and looking at the stars, you know, can really set your heart free and remind you that, you know, you're part of something much bigger, you know, and that your current situation will pass. And, and you know, you got to really embrace that vastness, you know, each and every day as much as you can. Yeah, there's something really potent in there. There's that little piece of knowledge. And I, I, I really want to share my appreciation with you kind of sharing so much of this wisdom that you've kind of gathered up, this idea of recognizing that you know, everything is always con in a constant state of change and in every moment is shifting, even if we might not be able to perceive those shifts and uh, things work in seasons. And, you know, um, just as, you know, we've noticed it before in our lives, like things don't stay the same forever. So if, if you are in a struggling kind of um, point wherever you are at the moment, you know, things will change and there will be a shift in seasons. And it's just kind of about, maybe experiencing or feeling into that experience or surrendering into it probably is a better way to put it. Um, and then allowing that to pass rather than trying to force your way out of it, which I think brings more struggle. It seems, um, yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely something beautiful in that, uh, thought. So yeah, thanks. Thanks for sharing everything Wes got today. I think it's probably a good time to wrap it up. I've got about two and a half minutes left on the recorder. Um, but I did okay. want to kind of, um, leave on a nice landing point. And I think that was a beautiful one, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. Good, good high note. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, I do want to kind of, before I let you go, and, you know, I feel like we might even cross paths in person one day with our kind of mutual friend of Merinik because we're keen yeah. to do um, some ceremonies together. We, we, um, we worked in Costa Rica together with um ayahuasca and and um we did a ceremony in, in canada i think around the area that you're in actually um mm -hmm. so we, we're looking to kind of cross paths again merinick and aiden and i don't know it felt really right out meeting them in costa rica and it just really felt like um we were instant friends and i feel a similar way with this kind of chat as well there's this this vibe that's been generated but i, I wanted to quickly ask you um you know I'm, I am researching this book. I'm in the process of figuring out how to research a book. So I don't really know what I'm doing, but this idea of vibration has caught me and I want to follow the thread a little bit. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on, on vibration and, and I've been exploring these, um, these methods of kind of these ancient methods of getting to these states as well and how vibration links into that. Do you have anything that comes to mind, you know, when I mention that? Uh, the only thing, well, a couple of things. I know that, uh, listening to certain kinds of audio recordings, like, uh, you know, drum beating or biurnal beats, uh, can help enter an altered state of consciousness. Uh, personally, myself, when I think of vibrations, I, I think of emotions mostly, mm. intuitions. And, uh, I think of the significance of the, of the, you know, the chakras, you know, within the spiritual body that denote. Uh, different frequencies, you might say, of consciousness. I, I find that's a that's the useful way of thinking about emotions. It's almost like a vibration or a frequency in consciousness, where when consciousness is in a different state, 
uh, it tends to, you know, it's almost like a different sound or a different feeling or a different vibe. Mm. And so, uh, yeah, I think, I think it's really interesting to, you know, think of the, the whole process of maturation, starting with the lower chakras of attachment, then an adolescence moving into sexuality, uh, the aggression of, of early young years and, and the heart chakra usually that's achieved with a family, sometimes self-discipline and, uh, you know, the realization of God and finally enlightenment. Uh, these, these are, you know, almost like a spectrum. And you'll often see that actually with the chakras. They'll be described as like a rainbow, you know, different frequencies of colors. So I think, I think it's a useful metaphor. I personally, myself, I, I, I think it's important to be uh, cautious with with the word or with the use of the word vibration mm. because I, I do find sometimes it's overused or you know sometimes we can use words so much that they start to lose meaning you know where it becomes so vague <laughs> you could you can throw just about anything in there and I find that's often unfortunately the case with uh, the word vibrations you know uh, you know it becomes so vague that you know it can become meaningless but uh, yeah, as long as there's some context and, and specifically a discussion on what exactly, you know, is being discussed in a practical sense, you know, things that can be observed, it's, uh, it's very useful. Yeah, and it's just, a very nice way of thinking about the world. Yeah, it's just, I guess, my own personal lens. And I've often kind of looked at this spectrum of moods like in terms of music, especially, and just looking at how it's an infinite spectrum. And there's so many slight little tweaks you can make to really adjust the mood and then you know the associations that you might be able to find within that space because of that certain feeling that arises or that mood um from from certain sounds and certain vibrations but it's just it just feels like such a big space to play in you know like there are so many different perspectives from a scientific point of view from a from music in terms of art in terms of like you mentioned emotions chakras you know what what different kind of um, through sound, through chanting, there's this primordial sound that comes through that vibrates through our system. Water. There's so many different kind of avenues to take, and and I think it's going to be hard to really nail it down. But I, I'm hoping that it kind of unravels and unfolds on its own once I start asking another, enough people about it and and exploring these different. You know, something I really found interesting was um, the idea of these um, strangely uh, forming patterns within nature. Um, like uh, that don't really seem to make much sense, but they they they're so beautiful to kind of witness and experience. Like like, have you ever seen a couple of thousand birds kind of flying in unison when they make those really extraordinary kind of shapes in the air, or or fish in you know scores of fish, or certain types mm -hmm. of um, uh, fireflies that sync up and 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 have like a bit of a light show go on. Um, that seems yeah, pretty interesting. Uh there's a, a great show actually on Netflix called the code where uh, I think his name is Marcus de Sutoy or something like that. And he, he talks about the mathematics, you know, behind, mm. behind a lot of that. And that's, uh, it's one of the things I think is really overlooked and neglected. There's a tremendous amount of, of spirituality to be seen in math. Um, I'm reminded of the words of Euclid who said the laws of nature are, but the mathematical thoughts of God. And, uh, you know, I, I recall even in my book, I talk about it when I, <laughs> I was, uh, well, I was high as a kite at the time. <laughs> <laughs> While you're riding. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, and I was, I was actually driving, which was a huge mistake, but, uh, you know, it, it turned out okay. I was, this was when I was quite a bit younger and, and my girlfriend and I, we were driving through the mountains 
and uh, I was looking out and I remember seeing Abraham Lake, which is this big, beautiful lake close to where I live. And uh, being as stoned as I was, I looked at it and I could see the clouds and I could see the snow on the mountains and the water in the lake. And I thought, it's all water. And I'm like, but what's the difference? Well, the, the water has a certain amount of kinetic energy, heat energy, vibrational energy, and the ice its own and the clouds its own. So the only real difference between the ice, the clouds and the water is its frequency, its vibration. And uh, then I had the inspiration to do a painting uh, where everything was in black except for water. And so each level of the water would change, you know, like a rainbow. So I had the lake in like a red, and then the snow and more greens and yellows and, a, you know, at the top, a different color. It turned out to be a lovely painting. But it was just this intuitive insight that I had that that was really true of all the world, that everything is made out of the same essential stuff. But fundamentally, it just differs in terms of frequency, differs in terms of vibration. And it wasn't until years later that I learned about quantum field theory and how, in a certain sense, that's actually true. That, that really is the way things really is the way things are. And so, uh, yeah, being stoned in the mountains, uh, I had this profound insight on the nature of reality. <laughs> mm. And it, it seems to, everything seems to lead to that one central point of, of this kind of um, oneness, I guess. And that, that, that seems to flow through everything. Um, oh, yeah. And it's really just, you know, how do we actually make use of that? How do we um, connect with that idea and, and in some way kind of fall into it? And accept it. It's it's difficult unless I, I found it personally difficult unless I've been coming from an experiential point of view to kind of imagine and picture and, and take that on board. Mm -hmm. mm. That's true. Anyways, man, I'll let you go. But uh, thanks again. <laughs> yeah, this has been good. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Today Dreamer podcast. If you enjoyed it, please consider subscribing. I'm going to leave some links to Westcott's amazing work. His awesome videos on YouTube are definitely worth, um, worth checking them out because there's some interesting stuff in there that you can really learn from and it, it really tickles your spiritual curiosity, I guess, um, to dive into um, someone's work that's really you know, put some extensive research and, and attention and intention into what they've produced. Uh, so yeah, I'll leave some links for you guys to check that out. It's really cool stuff. And stay tuned because next week we're going to be speaking to Charles Eisenstein, who's all about um, oneness and the illusion, stepping away from the illusion of the separate self to work together in collaboration. So we're going to be talking about some interesting things. I'm going to leave that for next week's episode, but thanks again and I'll catch you then.